Well, our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. I've titled the message, Three Christ-like Qualities. Uh, up to this point, we have taken one of Jesus' Beatitudes in our morning messages. This morning, I'm going to attempt to take three of them in the time that is available to us. Let's go ahead and get underway here. If you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand with us as we read God's Word. We'll read the Beatitudes in their entirety, as has been our practice. Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, pins the following words. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. As we build up to our text this morning, I want you to see something of the progression of the Beatitudes to this point. The first three Beatitudes show us how a man stands as a sinner in relation to God. We we talked about the poor in spirit, those who understand and recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt, those who understand that they are broken before God because of their sin, and they mourn over their sin. They mourn over the sin of this world, and those who are meekly humble. Those first, three added, those first three beatitudes show how a man stands as a sinner in relation to God. And then the fourth beatitude, that's where we were last Sunday. Ben did a phenomenal job teaching through that fourth beatitude, which is the promise of God's provision of righteousness for the man or the woman who comes to him in desperation, panting and starving for righteousness. Is that you, friends? Are you starving for, are you hungering for righteousness? We must come to God like the deer in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I come? When shall I come and appear before God? Is that your hunger? Is that your thirst for the righteousness of God? Do you hunger and thirst like that panting deer does for the water. You see, the first four Beatitudes, they deal with the inner man. And this morning, we'll turn our attention to the fifth, sixth, and seventh Beatitude. But in all reality, the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth Beatitudes, on the other hand, they mark a turning point in Jesus' sermon. What they do is they begin to demonstrate the character of a genuinely converted person, especially in relation to how he or she relates to others. First four Beatitudes speak of the inner man, how a man or how a woman relates rightly to God. The last four Beatitudes speak distinctly to how that man or woman relates to others. These are practical Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's our text for this morning. You see, the man or the woman who has tasted of the goodness of God's righteousness is to show mercy to others. He's to be pure in heart. She's to be pure in heart. And they are to be peacemakers. I want you to see the correlation, though, between the first four Beatitudes and the last four Beatitudes. You'll see a grid there on your outlines this morning. If you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so. You'll listen better if you do. Look at that first column there. Verse 3, the very first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and recognize their need for mercy. You see, that directly correlates to verse 7, our text for this morning, because those individuals will be merciful to others. 
They'll be merciful to others. Those who are poor in spirit and recognize that they desperately need the mercy of God will in turn be merciful to others. Verse 3 and 7 correlate to one another. Verse number 4, those who mourn and are broken over their sin correlates with verse 8. There'll be a purity of heart, a sincerity of heart, a transparency of heart. The third beatitude, verse 5, blessed are those who are meek, directly corresponds to verse 9, because the meek will seek to make peace with others. We said to be meek is to be humble, to be humble. Boy, how many conflicts are the result of a lack of humility. A peacemaker has to humble himself or humble himself. So you see the meek in relation to God. We see peacemakers in relation to other. There's a correlation between verses 5 and 9. And then lastly, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Correlates with verses 10 through 12. The final part of Jesus' beatitudes here. Because those people are never unwilling to pay the price of being persecuted for righteousness sake. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see the correlation here? The first four Beatitudes are primarily vertical. How a man or how a woman rightly relates to the triune God. The last four Beatitudes speak specifically to how we relate to one another. This morning we'll look at verses 7 through 9 together. We'll look at the merciful, we'll look at the pure in heart, and we'll look at the peacemakers. Number one on your outline is this, if you're taking notes. God delights in those who are compassionate. Let me draw your eyes back to verse 7 for a minute. Chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew writes, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's emphatic. We should understand it. Blessed are the merciful, for they and they alone shall receive mercy. But what does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to be merciful? If we're called to be that, we need to understand what that means. Blessed are the merciful. The word merciful is the Greek word eliemon. It means to show tender compassion, to pity those who are struggling under the effects of sin. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world that is plagued by the curse of the fall. Sin is running rampant. The question is, do we have compassion for, do we have pity for those who are struggling under the effects of sin? It's important to know that Jesus isn't just referring to those who who show mercy on an occasional instance, but those, rather, who have a bent towards showing mercy. And to understand something about mercy, we have to first understand God's mercy that has been shown to us, God's mercy that has been lavished upon us, God's mercy that has been displayed toward us. You see, we typically define mercy as God withholding what we rightfully deserve. That's what mercy does. Mercy withholds what is rightly due. We, for our sin, deserve the unmitigated fury and wrath of a righteous God. Mercy withholds what we rightfully deserve. And God gives us grace in his son in its place. Mercy is God withholding what we rightly deserve. Another way to say that would be God not treating us as our sins deserve. That's what Psalm 103 verse 10 speaks about. That God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Thank God. Listen to the undeserved mercy that God has shown to us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that he might show us the immeasurable riches of his glory. That's mercy. That's God's mercy shown toward us. Desperate sinners. How about 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's mercy. Mercy, friends, not one of us deserves it. But in Christ, God lavishes it. He lavishes it. And so we as Christians are to be merciful because of the mercy that has been shown to us. 
Because of the great immeasurable mercy that has been demonstrated toward us by God through his son Christ, we therefore, as Christ image bearers to this world, are to show mercy to others. Because God is merciful and shows mercy continuously, the citizens of his kingdom must also be compassionate and tender-hearted towards others. Let me ask you this question, friends. Any of you have Ephesians 4.32 memorized? Anybody have a Ephesians 4.32 memorized? Write that down, and I would encourage you to memorize it. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, to the degree that you and I understand the weight of sin that we have been forgiven, to that extent you will be ready to show the same mercy and forgiveness to others who sin against you. Consider the mercy of Christ. Consider Jesus' mercy as he looked out over the multitudes in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew writes, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The word there, compassion, splanknizomai, it means to be turned in your bowels, to literally have your insides wrenched. Jesus felt that way as he looked out over the mass of humanity who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the way Jesus felt when he looked out over the mass of humanity that were going like sheep in their own direction. Headlong toward destruction. And Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus expressed mercy. Jesus expressed compassion as he hung there on Calvary's cross. Luke chapter 23, Jesus uttered the words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's mercy. That's compassionate, tender mercy. God is compassionate towards his children. Again, Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows their frame. He remembers that we are all dust. He's compassionate towards us. And because we, in Christ, have been the recipients of such lavish mercy from God, we are in turn to show mercy to others. But that's not what the world does. The world prefers to insulate itself against the pains and calamities of men. But those who find mercy are to show it. Friends, nothing so moves us to show mercy like the wondering knowledge that we ourselves have been forgiven. How often do we meditate on that? How often do we remember that? How often do we consider the weight of sin that has been forgiven us? How often do we consider the pile upon piles upon piles upon piles? Romans chapter 2, that, that, the imagery there of storing up for yourselves wrath for the day of God's righteous judgment, that was us before we came to Christ. How often do we consider the great debt of sin that we ourselves have been forgiven? Because nothing so moves us to show mercy like the wondering knowledge that we ourselves have been shown mercy. We're to show pity and compassion on those who are struggling under the burden and the effects of sin, knowing that we too struggle under the same burden. Paul calls us in Romans chapter 9, vessels of mercy. That's what we're to be as believers. Vessels of mercy, containers, literally, of mercy. Conduits of mercy. Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? Mercy and patience correlate, by the way. What if God desired to show patience on the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand? He calls us as believers vessels of mercy, conduits of mercy to a lost and dying world. Jesus taught the need for mercy specifically in two stories. He taught it often, but specifically in two stories that come to mind. He first taught it in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, you'll find that parable. And second, in the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. 
And friends, we want to be like the good Samaritan of Luke chapter 10 and not the unforgiving servant of Matthew chapter 18. Let me encourage you to keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 5. Turn to the right a handful of pages to Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at the story together. The parable of the unforgiving servant. I want you to see what a lack of mercy looks like. Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, is the antithesis of Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21 through verse 35, this is what a lack of mercy looks like, friends. Oftentimes, though, what we're going to read describes us to the T. Matthew writes, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. Again, mercy and patience, there's a correlation there. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, Mercy, pity, compassion. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. Mercy, forgiveness, a correlation there. But, and here we often are, friends, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, hmm. Sounds familiar, does it not? Have patience with me, and I will pay you. Familiar words. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and rightly so, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Oh, how often we harbor bitterness. Oh, how often we let the ember of unforgiveness smolder when all along we've been forgiven an insurmountable debt of sin. And to the degree that we realize that, to the degree that we ponder upon the great debt of sin that has been forgiven us, we will be quick and ready and eager to extend that same forgiveness, that same mercy, that same compassion, that same pity, that same tenderheartedness towards others who sin against us in a minuscule way in comparison. Here's a test of your mercy, and I'm in the crosshairs too here, friends. Think about this. How do you respond when you hear of another person who's struggling in sin? How do you respond? This is a test of mercy. How do you respond? How do I respond when we hear of another person who's struggling in sin? Instead of feeling smug and self-righteousness or self-righteous, do we pity them? Better yet, do we pray for them? Do we understand that apart from the grace of God, there go I? How do we respond when you hear of another person who's struggling in sin? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean that we sweep sin under the rug. That's just rearranging a mess, right? It does nothing with the dirt. But it should affect the way that we deal with that person. How about this? How do you respond when you encounter a discouraged brother or sister? How do you respond when you encounter someone who's broken? Do you avoid them knowing that encouragement requires work? Encouragement's not easy. Being around a discouraged person is not always easy. Do we avoid them because we know that encouraging that one requires work? How about this? How do you respond when someone lets you down? or hurts you and needs your forgiveness? How do you respond? When someone lets you down, hurts you, and needs your forgiveness, 
Let me connect this back, that, that statement there. Just think about that. How do you respond when you are hurt by someone else? And let me connect that back to the preceding beatitude. Remember, just last week, Ben taught for us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, it's good Christian speak to talk about hungering for God. And I would suggest to you that it's not just good Christian speak. We ought to all desire that from the heart, to hunger for God. Well, in reality, when you and I show graciousness and mercy towards those who have hurt you, you show how much of God you really want. On the other hand, if you seek to punish your offender and to make them feel perpetually guilty for their offense against you, you demonstrate that you don't want God as much as you thought you did or said you did. Let that settle in for just a moment. Remember, the question was, how do you respond when someone lets you down, hurts you, or needs your forgiveness? And so just connect that back to the preceding beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you and I demonstrate graciousness, when you and I demonstrate mercy, when you and I demonstrate compassion and pity and tenderheartedness, we demonstrate that we really do hunger and thirst for God, that we really do hunger and thirst for righteousness, but when we withhold it, we demonstrate that we don't want God as much as we said we did or thought we did. You see the connection, friends? You see, even if your offender hasn't repented, even if your offender hasn't asked your forgiveness, we have no right to hold bitterness against them. doesn't mean there's not a hurt there but we have no right to hold bitterness against them. God holds no bitterness against you if you're here this morning and you're in Christ. You see, true godliness seeks to set our offenders free instead of seeking to hold them captive. True forgiveness, true humility, true mercy seeks to let our offender free rather than hold them captive. Friends, we're never more like Christ than when we're forgiving those who sinned against us. A merciful spirit, a merciful spirit is reasonable, it's easy to entreat, and it's quick to forgive. How quick to forgive are we? The answer to that question is the answer to the question, how merciful are you? Jesus goes on to say that it's the merciful who shall receive mercy. Let me say just a brief final word here concerning verse 7 before we move to verse 8. This particular beatitude, Matthew 5, 7 here, has been problematic for some who see Jesus as saying that receiving mercy from God depends on showing mercy to others. And upon reading just a glance of the text, that's the way it appears, right? Mercy from God depends on my showing mercy to others. Another way to say that, if we understand the text that way, would be that we earn mercy by being merciful to others. Well, friends, if that were the case, if God dealt with us on, that, on those terms, no man would ever see heaven. No woman would ever see heaven. What Jesus is saying here is that we're to show mercy to others because of, that's the operative word, because of the lavish mercy that has been shown to us. If we're not merciful to others, then we demonstrate that we understand very little about the mercy that we have been shown, or that we've never tasted the mercy of God to begin with. Nothing proves with more clarity that we ourselves have been forgiven than our own readiness to forgive. And this, my friends, is difficult. It's easy to talk about in a controlled environment, but what I know is I know that there are some of you sitting in here this morning who are struggling to forgive someone. And I just want to, as your brother, who also struggles at times to forgive, remind you that if you let that unforgiveness smolder, it will burn you to a hollow core from the inside out. Forgive. Mercy seeks to let our offender go free instead of holding them captive. Don't seek to retaliate. Don't seek to settle the score. Don't seek to right the wrongs all on your own. 
Don't seek vengeance. That is God's parking spot. Do not park there. Jesus said, speaking of his father, I alone am God. I will exercise vengeance. That's not our parking spot. Don't park there. Don't park there. I love the words of the 18th century hymn by Charles Wesley, and can it be? This is what he writes. He, Jesus, left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love, and he bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy, all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Is it true of you, friends? Has God's mercy found out you? If so, your relationships will look distinctly different. Number two on your outline, God delights in those who are sincere. God delights in those who are, in, who are compassionate. God delights in those who are sincere. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5, if you're not already there, and look at verse 8. Matthew writing Jesus' words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, in verse 8, Jesus confers a special blessing not on the intellectually keen, not on the emotionally pious, but on the pure in heart. That's who gets the blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure here, it's a beautiful word. Katharos carries the idea of cleanliness or clarity. Young people, you ever see your mom when she's taking dishes out of the dishwasher, husbands, wives maybe, and this isn't, this could be anybody, but hold a dish, particularly a glass up to the light to see if there are spots on it or not. It's the idea here. Katharos carries the idea of cleanliness or clarity. Also has the idea of sincerity. That's why I said God delights in those who are sincere. I'll make the connection for you here in just a second. God used the exact same, Jesus rather, used the exact same root of katharos when he said, speaking to the Pharisees, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean. There's the word, katharos. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You see, the problem with the Pharisees, and before we go pointing fingers at the Pharisees, we need to realize that there's a Pharisee, there's a Pharisee that resides in each and every one of our hearts. But the problem with the Pharisees is that who they were on the inside and who they were on the outside were two totally different people. We call that insincerity. insincerity. Hypocrisy. To be pure in heart carries the idea of cleanliness, but it also speaks about transparency and sincerity. Who we are out in the open needs to be the same or needs to be congruent with who we are in the inmost recesses of our hearts. That's challenging. Because so many of us are tempted to wear a different mask and play a different role depending on the occasion and depending on who's watching. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are clean of heart, sincere, transparent. How many of us live one life out in the open and another life behind closed doors? We become great play actors if we're not careful. You see, purity of heart should be the desire of every blood-bought sinner as a response to the grace of God that has been given him at the cross. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells us this. He says, the aim of our charge is to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. In Psalm 51, 6, David said, Behold, you, God, delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then just four verses later, Psalm 51, verse 10, David says, Created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Is that the cry of your heart? Is that your earnest prayer? God, create a pure heart in me. Make me clean. Not just externally. Remember, that was the sole focus of the Pharisees. And there is a little Pharisee that resides in each of our hearts, but a pure heart, which translates into pure behavior. Pure attitudes, pure actions, pure speech. We need a pure heart. And so we ought pray and ought pray often, God created in me. Replace any impurity in my heart that you see with a clean heart, O oh God. 
with transparency that who I am in secret is who I'll be in public. That there's congruency between my heart and my mouth, my heart and my actions. Jesus always targets our heart. Matter of fact, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is drilling down past the facade. He's drilling down past the externals. He's drilling down past what we can see on the outside to the heart. Jesus always, always, always pressed into the heart primarily because it's the heart that controls the rest. Luke 6, 45. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus always targeted the heart. What is the heart? Well, the heart in Scripture is the inner person. It's where you relate to God. It's the command center of your thoughts and your motives and your desires and your cravings and your intentions and your affections. It's your worship center. That's what your heart is. It's your worship center. You see every single person without exception converted or lost his last year's Easter egg is a worshiper of something. Everyone worships. We were made to worship. And it's your heart. Your heart is the command center. It's the control center for what you worship. Your heart is where you fear or have peace. It's where you rejoice. It's where you trust. It's where you believe. It's where you grow weary. It's where you take courage. That's why Jesus is drilling down to it. Your heart is also the place that you make excuses, that you lust that you hold bitterness, envy, that you compare yourself to others, that you defend yourself and lie to yourself and others. You see, the heart is the fountain of who you are. Solomon gave us some great wisdom when he encouraged us in Proverbs 4.23, saying, above all else, guard your heart, protect your heart, keep vigilant, watch over your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Some of us neglect our heart to just focus on the external. It was the very thing that Jesus took the Pharisees to task for. You're like whitewashed tombs, he said. You look great on the outside, all prim and proper. You got everything together, all your, all your I's dotted and your T's crossed, but inside, inside it's a hot mess. Focus rather on the inside, and then the outside will follow suit. Cleanliness, purity of heart. How often do we even think about that? We oftentimes think about sin as, well, don't do this and do that. And don't say these words and speak like that. We think of it as a list of do's and don'ts. How often do we connect holiness and righteousness to the heart and then cultivate the heart? Are we, are we cultivating the garden of our heart that it would grow godliness? That it would grow those thoughts, grow those actions, grow those desires, grow those hopes that please God and honor him. Guard your heart, Solomon said, above all else. You see, Jesus' assessment of the natural heart, it wasn't very appealing. This is the way Jesus speaks about the natural heart. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus said, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Jeremiah goes on. Jeremiah 17, 10. says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, and I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. But our hearts left alone are wicked. Despite this less than desirable diagnosis of our hearts, Jesus insists that purity of the heart is an indispensable prerequisite for fellowship with God. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's not an option. It's an indispensable prerequisite for fellowship with God, that we have a pure heart, that we be growing in a purity of heart. Clarity, transparency, sincerity, that we would do away with the hypocrisy that characterized our past. And pursue the Lord with a clean and pure heart. In Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 through 5, David asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a what? Pure heart. 
clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to that which is false or swear deceitfully. He'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see, God is holy, friends. Holy, perfect, pure, without spot, without blemish, without defect. Perfectly pure. And he requires that of his own. He requires that of his own. That's why the writer of Hebrews insists, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let me ask you this question, friends. If we could spiritually x-ray your heart this morning, if I could spiritually x-ray my heart, what would we find? Would we see that it's pure? You see, this beatitude here, blessed are the pure in heart, it forces us to answer some soul-searching questions. Let me pause and make a quick commercial here for a book. David Pallison's book, Seeing with New Eyes, would encourage you to get a copy of this book. There's a chapter in David Pallison's book here that is entitled X-Ray Questions. It, in my opinion, is worth the price of the book. It's an excellent book, Seeing with New Eyes. David Pallison would encourage you to get a copy of it. Here are some of the soul-searching, soul-penetrating questions that this beatitude forces us to ask of ourselves. And answering these questions will help us determine areas of impurity in our heart. Let me give you just a smattering of them here. What do you love? How would you finish the sentence? What do you hate? What do you desire? What do you crave? What do you lust for and wish for the most? How would you answer the question? These questions, if they're answered honestly, will reveal areas of impurity in our heart. How about this one? Where do you bank your hopes? Where do you take refuge? Who's the savior, the judge, the controller, the provider, the protector in your world? What do you fear? What do you not want? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? What frustrates you or makes you angry? What are your plans, your agendas? your strategies, and your intentions designed to accomplish? What makes your clock tick? What lights up your world? What fountains of life and hope and delight do you drink from? Where do you find refuge, comfort, pleasure, Security? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? These are some penetrating questions. Who must you please? Whose opinion of you counts the most? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? What do you see as your rights? What do you feel like you're entitled to? What do you pray for? Or why don't you pray? What do you think about most often? What preoccupies or obsesses you? In the morning, what does your mind drift to instinctively? What do you talk about the most? How do you spend your leisure time? Let me give you just one final one here. How would you finish finish this sentence? If only. How would you finish that sentence? If only. Fill in the blank. Pallison gives many more questions in this chapter. Would encourage you to get a copy of it. And I would encourage you to wrestle with the answers of those questions because those questions will most certainly bring up areas in our hearts that need to be purified, that need to be purified. Jesus tells us that it's only the pure in heart who will see God. You see, in a daily sense, 
just kind of the, the normal daily Christian life, the more that we walk in the light and the more that we allow God's word to expose our sin and the quicker we are to confess and turn from our sin, the more that we will see the glory of God in our lives. The quicker we are to deal with our sin, the more that we walk in the light, the quicker that we are to confess our sin, to agree with God about our sin, the more we will see of God's glory in our lives. In a word, we'll see God work so clearly, so powerfully, so obviously, and so magnificently that it would be true that we could say we've seen God at work in our lives. That's the daily Christian life sense in which I think that Jesus is speaking here. That we would see God as operating in our lives. That we would see the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells within us. Conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. But I think Matthew is probably surely here writing in an eschatological or a future sense. Speaking of a day when we shall see God. You see, one day, the kingdom of heaven, when it's consummated, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. Our minds can, can scarcely fathom the day. When Christ himself will, repeat, will appear, and then we shall at last be like him. Why? Because we'll what? See him as he is. You see, that's our future hope. There's a real sense in which we see God today as being operative in our life. We see him revealing our sin. We see him, we see his grace operating as we crucify the flesh and we live for Christ. But I think that Matthew is, is certainly seeing here as he pens Jesus' words, he's certainly seeing a future day in which Jesus will appear and all of his own will be like him for we will see him. We shall see him as he is. You see, that's the long range hope and expectation. John goes on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If that's your future hope, seeing him as he is and being like him, if that's your future hope, and it ought to be your future hope, Christian, then you ought to be purifying yourself today, readying yourself for that day when you see him face to face. You see, the Christian purifies himself, the Christian purifies herself because to be pure is what we ultimately will be. That's why you do it today. You purify yourself today. You grow in godliness today. You grow in holiness today. Because that's what you one day will be. Friends, let me ask you this question. Are your present efforts to be holy and pure consistent with your future hope of being forever pure? Let me rewind the statement. Are your present efforts at being holy and pure consistent with your future hope of being ultimately pure? And if not, why is there an incongruency? Verse number nine. And number three on your outline, God delights in those who seek reconciliation. God delights in those who seek reconciliation. Turn your eyes to verse nine there. Matthew writing Jesus' words, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. The reconcilers. Let me ask you this question, friends. Where do wars begin? Where do wars begin? James tells us, James chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You see, friends, whenever we put two sinners in close proximity, there will be conflict. That's the truth you can take to the bank. Whenever you put two sinners in close proximity, there will be conflict. It's not if, it's when. Conflict is the result of viewing another person as an obstacle to you getting what you want. And here's the problem, friends, is that so often we are so bent on getting what we want that we're willing to go to war over it. Happens in our marriages, happens in our friendships, happens at work. Here's the picture. You have wants, dreams, and desires. Other people have wants, dreams, and desires. we got two options at this point. We either lock horns and go to war over our wants, dreams, and desires, or we lay our wants, dreams, and desires down and exercise what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, that you would think to the interests of others as being more important than your own. 
I can lay my wants down. I can lay my dreams down. I can lay my desires down. I'm not going to go to war with you over them. To please Christ is much more important to me. We get angry and we wage war in our relationships when we don't get what we want or when we do get what we don't want. But God saves us and he gives us a new heart. And so, as a result, we ought to be growing in being less of a troublemaker and more of a peacemaker. Which better describes you? Are you more of a troublemaker or are you more of a peacemaker? As we grow in Christ, we ought to be growing in being more of a peacemaker. You see, within the biblical framework, Jesus Christ is the greatest peacemaker, is he not? He's the Prince of Peace. He makes peace between God and man by removing our sin by paying for it on Calvary's cross, which is the ground for our alienation, and he makes peace between men by bringing them into a right relationship with God and then subsequently into a right relationship with others. Jesus is the greatest peacemaker. Christians were to be characterized as peacemakers. We're no longer at war with God, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by Faith, we have peace with God. We're no longer at war with God. And this changes not only our relationship with God, but it ought to change our relationship with others as well. You see, we aren't to live as selfish anymore. We aren't to live as demanding anymore. We aren't to live as angry anymore. We aren't to live as bitter anymore. We're to be peacemakers, not peace fakers and not peace breakers. Peacemakers. Not peace fakers. There's plenty of those, right? We just put a smile on and pretend like everything's okay, sweeping everything under the rug. Problem is it just rearranges dirt, right? Skeletons in the closet will come out as soon as you open it. We're not trying to fake peace. We're not trying to break it. We're trying to make it. Let me submit to you that peacemaking takes place oftentimes in our evangelism. You see, the good news of the gospel is the greatest peacemaking message on the face of the planet. You see, the Christian who shares his or her faith is a, is a harbinger of peace, a peacemaker in an evangelistic sense. Isaiah 52.7 pictures a messenger racing through the Judean hill country when he writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul uses the exact same language in Romans chapter 10, does he not? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news. Friends, as you seek to share your faith, as you seek to be the evangelist that God has called you to be in every sphere of life, you're being a peacemaker. But we're also called to be peacemakers in our relationships. Again, you put two sinners in close proximity. It won't be very long before sparks fly. Let me have you turn over in your Bible, and you can stay here. You don't need to keep a finger anywhere. But turn over to Romans chapter 12 very briefly. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 16. And I want to show you what the life of a peacemaker looks like here in about five verses. We see peacemaking in evangelism as we share the good news of the gospel. But in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, at work, with our neighbors, with our children, how are we to be peacemakers? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 19. Look at verse 16. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, do not be prideful, do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here's the principle here from verse 16. A peacemaker deals with the pride of his own heart or her own heart. That's the principle from verse 16. A peacemaker deals with the pride that exists and resides in their own heart first. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Here's the principle from verse 17. A peacemaker doesn't return evil for evil. A peacemaker doesn't return evil for evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable Not only are we not to repay evil for evil, but we're to go on and beyond a step and we're to think about what is honorable for others. Look at verse 18. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all men. Here's the principle. A peacemaker does whatever it takes to live at peace with others. He does all he can, all she can to live at peace with others. Look at verse 19. And lastly here. We've already spoken to this briefly, but Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the principle. A peacemaker doesn't seek his own revenge. A peacemaker doesn't seek his own revenge. Four principles there. Romans chapter 12. A peacemaker deals with the pride of his own heart. A peacemaker doesn't return evil for evil. A peacemaker does all that he can to live at peace with others. And a peacemaker doesn't seek his own revenge. If we just painted a picture, is it a picture of you? Friends, we ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak. Our mouths get us in trouble often. Our mouths are the, the cause, or at least the vocal conduit of a lot of our conflict. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Own your part of any conflict. Takes two to tango, right? I have once dreams, desires, you have once dreams, desires, and we lock horns and go to war. Own your part. Be quick to acknowledge, ask forgiveness. Let me say this briefly. There's a major difference between saying, I'm sorry, and will you forgive me? Adults, let me encourage you, if it has not been your ongoing practice to ask another individual whom you have sinned against specifically to forgive you, Would you start that practice instead of just merely, I'm sorry? Parents, train your children from a young age to begin asking for forgiveness when they sin as compared to just saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry oftentimes just means this. I'm sorry you're upset. Now go deal with your problems. Will you forgive me acknowledges I have sinned and asks for specific forgiveness. Be willing to work hard to lovingly resolve problems, friends. If, if conflict resolution were easy, more people would be doing it. It requires hard work. It requires laying down your pride. It requires trusting Christ. And then be prepared to do good, not evil, even when your efforts at peacemaking are rejected, and they will be. There will be times when your efforts at peacemaking are just outright rejected. Be ready to forgive and to do good and not evil even when they're rejected. Friends, is this a picture of you? Are you growing in compassion for those who are struggling under the burden of sin? Are you growing in sincerity and transparency, a purity of heart? Some great questions to ask yourself, some x-ray questions. Are you a conduit of reconciliation? Are you seeking to make peace as far as it depends on you with all men? I certainly hope so.